please join us for episode four of Bewitched. Mother Meet What's-His-Name. Bewitched, bothered and bewildered, am I? Welcome to Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, our podcast about magical shows from the 1960s. I'm Molly. And I'm Frank. This episode, we're going to be chatting about the fourth episode of season one of Bewitched. Mother, meet what's-his-name. But before we get started, we're going to give you a quick synopsis. Nosy neighbor Gladys Kravitz is unable to convince her husband Abner that strange things seem to be happening over at the Stevens home. Gladys, along with June Foster, Shirley Clyde, and their three sons, visit the Stevens' home to welcome Samantha to the community and to politely humiliate Sam in the process. When the boys begin to pester Endora, who is hiding upstairs, she uses her magic to hogtie all three of them. While leaving, Gladys tries to point out to her friends that it would be physically impossible for the three boys to tie themselves up, but they, like everyone else, ignore her. Later, Darren returns home for his first meeting with Endora, and they lock horns almost immediately. Yeah, so we start out with one of my favorite lines of the whole show, where Endora says that she never thought she would see her daughter kneeling in the dirt digging for onions. (laughs) As if she were some sort of medieval peasant foraging for sustenance. (laughs) Yep, she's really just trying to beautify the home, apparently. Correct, especially according to the narrator, Jose Ferrer. Among the more soul-satisfying suburban activities is that collaboration with nature that brings fragrance and beauty to the home, horticulture. But, of course, Endora has the most withering spin on even this simple bit of exertion. I think it might be worth saying a little something about the narrator. This is the last episode that the narrator appears Three out of the first four episodes have a little bit of funny narration at the beginning. Husbands are appreciative of their wives' efforts as they leave for their offices, secure in the knowledge that their mates are at home digging rather than in town shopping. (laughs) These are all narrated by an uncredited actor who is quite famous, actually. His name is Jose Ferrer. He was an extremely distinguished-looking actor from his time who was in movies like The Cane Mutiny. But the movie that I'll always remember him from is David Lynch's Dune, where he played the emperor of the universe. He has one of the most beautiful voices, and he has fantastic diction. In time, patience, fortitude, and loving care are rewarded by fragrant blooms, sturdy and bursting with color. Providing, of course, you have the proper soil and a green thumb. Or unless you happen to be a witch. Uh, I honestly am already going to miss his voice at the very beginning of these episodes, but the premise has been so well set up, it no longer becomes necessary to have these little introductions. It's too bad I like him too. Back to this episode. At the beginning, Endora is chiding Samantha because she uses her magic to cheat at repairing her failed attempts at planting a flower bed in front of the house. Yes. And Endora is very correctly chiding Samantha for cheating on her high-minded values. 
Samantha acts very ethical about using her magic in instances where it would feel like cheating. And Endora catches her at it. It happens frequently that Endora is <laughs> wise to Samantha's cheating. Samantha says that she didn't want to look a failure her first time at bat. And that leads to discussion between her and Endora about what baseball is. Yes. And it's clear that Samantha understands baseball just about as well as I do, which is not at all. Not at all. But she describes it to Endora, and then Endora has a very funny punchline at the end of it. Then everybody chases the ball, and the man who hits it runs around in a circle on a field called a diamond before anyone else can tag him. You're not serious. Oh, yes. Darren took me once. I don't believe it. And the one who runs around the most wins the series. Series of what? Nothing. Just a series. <laughs> Typical. Typical. That's a human being for you. Spend most of their lives running around in circles for a series of nothing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is hilarious. It is. Again, the race relations aspect of this, that this is sort of a derogatory thing you'd say about a whole people. Absolutely. Endora tends to paint humans with a very broad brush. It's so funny because I love Endora, and generally I don't love bigots. She's quite bigoted. But she is. I think from the very beginning, we're totally on the side of the witches. We are. If you remember from episode two, she infuriates Endora by decorating the entire house and landscaping the house through magic and then quickly removes all of it, insisting that they will wait to decorate and landscape the house once Darren can afford to do so. They will be cutting no corners. But this is a fantastic episode for her cutting corners at every turn. Whenever she gets into a pickle. Indeed. Samantha offers Endora a percolated cup of coffee. What sort of coffee do you have? Fresh in the percolator. I made it myself. No, thank you. I think I'll have a cup of Turkish kawa this morning. <laughs> mm, it's delicious. Have some? No, thank you. I'm not a coffee drinker. Is there actually some disdain appropriately placed against percolated coffee? It's been forever since I've been any place that had percolated coffee. No, I mean, I think it was so standard back then. The Turkish kawa that Endora wants is something incredibly exotic that no housewife watching would have even known what that was. I had to Wikipedia it. I Wikipedia it as well. Yeah. It seemed fascinating, actually. It's it's a real process to create it. Yeah, it's a fancy Turkish coffee. And again, we invoke the Middle East. I was thinking that as well. Just like Endora's slightly Middle Eastern carpet slippers with the turned up toes, here she ends up whisking up a little demitasse of elegant Turkish kawa coffee for herself. A little bit of Orientalism that's sort of seeping into the corners of magic. Yes. Very exotic. The next thing that happens is we start to see Gladys preparing to come over. She's dreading it. She's afraid. She's afraid she'll never be seen again. <laughs> Trying to get Abner upset about it, which of course he's not. <laughs> and then isn't this the place where she also says to him, I wish you would just take up a hobby? The man is made of hobbies. I know. All he's ever doing are hobbies. He, he's putting on the living room floor when she says it to him. Right. He's doing crossword puzzles, probably writing letters to the editor, all kinds of cranky old man things. But yeah. they're very solitary, lonesome activities. They're not, they're not things that involve Gladys. And they're certainly not things that involve Gladys's favorite loves, which are snooping and spying and meddling. Right. 
Right. Gladys paints him as not civically minded because of his utter lack of curiosity about his neighbors or the people living across the street from him. He's completely just tone deaf to all of what's going on. And like you said, she's always right. There is a lot (laughs) of stuff going on. But to be fair, the one thing is that where he's right is that it's none of her business. That's definitely true. And they kind of come to a head about that later too, I think. Oh, is Samantha preparing a gigantic ham for Darren's yes, dinner? For Darren's dinner. It, it is a ham that's bigger than Samantha's own head. <laughs> and it's not Easter or anything. This is not a special no. Easter episode of Bewitched. Just, just the two of them for dinner. And that ham weighs 20 pounds. <laughs> And it's covered in cloves and pineapple rings and brown sugar and yep. ginger ale. Yep. <laughs> it looks really unappealing. It does. But massive. Huge. And Endora gives her a tip about cooking it a little bit longer, which was interesting because I'm not sure why Endora would know how to cook. Endora makes it clear that it's the exertion that she objects to, not the knowledge of mortal things like cooking or horticulture. It's the physical labor that she finds menial because that is for servants and serfs and peasants and commoners. Then Samantha needs to call Darren about when he's going to get home. So here's what I found that was interesting. First of all, the phone isn't working. That's an important plot point. Indeed. The phone isn't working, so Endora twitches the phone and makes it work. So Samantha calls Darren and asks when he'll be home. But what I found interesting about that is when he would be home. This is New York, so he works in the city and they live in the suburbs. He finishes work at 6.30 and they have dinner at 8 o'clock. Well, he has to catch a train because they're actually in Connecticut. They're in the suburbs, but in a small Connecticut town. So he has to take a train. We're not talking about a subway train here. We're talking about, you know, a commuter train. It might be a lengthy ride. Maybe he has to make his way all the way to Penn Station or Grand Central. It seems pretty grueling, doesn't it? It does. It does. To get home at 8 o'clock at night. I thought that people worked closer to a 40-hour work week back in those days. I don't know why I think that. It's some political thing, probably. I think that I am buying into something about how we're working longer and longer hours and getting less and less for it as a just a change in our social structure from back then. But if he didn't get home from work until 8 o'clock at night, that seems like pretty long hours, especially for a guy that's just drawn pictures. Well, do remember that he has a mortgage that he can't afford that's hanging over his head like the sword of Damocles. Uh, he's in debt up to his eyeballs, so he better be working late if he's going to be able to keep them in the style to which they have have not become accustomed to quite yet. So there's a knock at the door, right? There is. And the girls are coming to call. Oh, I'll get it. Some of the girls coming to call. Oh, really? <laughs> Snooping, no doubt. I'm sure you won't mind if I make myself scarce for a bit. Coward. Discretion is the better part of valor. (laughs) I'm less impressed with their simple magic tricks, but I do love the sense that both Endora and Samantha are slightly psychic. They know things, and I I love that, actually. It it makes them very mysterious and powerful. Yeah, it's funny because it's not like one of the things that they focus on all the time, but in situations like this, they seem to know what's happening, and they're very aware of what these women are doing in the house. How do you do? 
How do you do? I'm June Foster. This is Shirley Clyde and Gladys Kravitz. We're the Welcome Wagon Committee. Welcome to Morning Glory Circle. Well, thank you very much. Won't you come in? <laughs> we brought you this cake as sort of a housewarming gift. Oh. It's coffee cake. Why, thank you. Thank you very much. And the Welcome Wagon is really a ruse. They just want to inspect the house and really catch Samantha and Darren in a vulnerable place. Oh, why don't we all go into the kitchen? We wouldn't mind at all. Of course not. After all, we're really not company, and well, your nice things will probably have to last you for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, there are just tons of jabs. It's just jab after jab from those ladies. Maybe next week I'll take you to our decorator. He can do wonders for you. <laughs> so, Endora retires to the bedroom, picks up her Harpy's Bazaar, and waits for the girls to be done with their uh, inspection of Samantha, the welcome wagon. I think this is actually a really good time to talk a little bit about wardrobe. Samantha is the most informally dressed of all the women here, and she looks amazing. She looks beautiful. And you're right. She's wearing just a button-up shirt. Like, could all practically be one of Darren's shirts. I thought that as well. A, a man's shirt, it looks like. And some capri pants. Yep, capri pants. They look a little bit like jeans. And she's got tennis shoes on. She was gardening. And the welcome wagon, of course, they're dressed very primly and rather dowdily. Yeah, librarian-like. You know, their clothes are perfectly matching in their suits with skirts. Just not very exciting. June has her gloves in her hand, of course. I think Gladys has gloves as well. Gladys is definitely wearing gloves. And then they send Samantha into the kitchen with the cake and say, we can go in the kitchen. We're not really company. (laughs) And then on their way into the kitchen, they like pick up items in the living room and look at the labels on them and show them to each other and make faces. It's so inappropriate. She's kind of put in this pickle where they are going through her kitchen and opening up her cabinets and drawers. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. Well, the other thing that's unbelievable to me is that if you walk into a house and you're bringing your eight or nine-year-old kids into a single couple's house and you would just say, okay, go along and play. Don't get into trouble. <laughs> and like release them into the rest of the house. But this is the way it was back then. That's the way I was raised, where the kids would just wander off. Kids could go anywhere. And no one was really paying attention to them or watching them. Would you like some cake and coffee? Oh, he'd love yes. some. Where are the cups? Cups? <laughs> oh, not your good cups, of course. Right over there in the cupboard. So what does Samantha do? She whips up some fancy bone china and some perfectly polished silver in the drawer. The welcome wagon is using the fact that they've invited themselves, and this isn't a formal occasion, as carte blanche to inspect absolutely everything and be completely inappropriate about having their three horrible kids run wild all over the house playing cowboys and Indians and examining all of their belongings. But, of course, I love that Samantha whips up bone china and formal silver and (laughs) then tells them, yeah, we haven't even unpacked the good stuff yet. Yeah. <laughs> what I was wondering what the good stuff would be. What's better than bone china and formal is silver? It, yeah, is it like jewel encrusted china or gold yeah. or platinum? Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. 
Uh, meanwhile, in the bedroom, and Dora is lounging on a chair and reading her Harpy's Bazaar once again, and the little boys run in and each introduce themselves. I'm a cowboy. I'm an Indian. He's a horse. What are you? And she says, I'm a witch. <laughs> and they say, are you a good witch or a bad witch? And she says, come see, come saw. I love that. It's it's a very <laughs> like a elegant cosmopolitan answer. Yes. And then, of course, they proceed to act up. She's trying to scold them. You don't really see when she does the dirty work. But what you can what tell did she that say? She's... Little boy. Little yeah. boy. Yes, <laughs> little boy. <laughs> little boy. Yeah, and then uh, you can see her kind of ramping up. And then the next time we see those boys, they're all tied up. Hilarious. Much to the chagrin of Gladys Kravitz. So while they're having their coffee clatch, the welcome wagon ropes Samantha into a civic protest of a freeway construction site. On top of all the other inappropriate things that they're doing, they immediately draft her and take the liberty... They make themselves an imposition on her time in the future. And, of course, it becomes clear that Gladys Kravitz is the low woman on the totem pole. That she's universally hated. Yeah, in case you haven't figured it out already, (laughs) she's the one who's stationed in case someone has to sit in front of the cement mixer. She's been assigned that duty. She doesn't remember anybody voting on it. (laughs) One of the ladies says, it was a secret ballot, Gladys. (laughs) Oh, poor Gladys. What do you take away from this? I love this middle act of the story, but it kind of feels like there's really no solidarity amongst women. My mom, she wasn't a great housekeeper. She was a pretty bad housekeeper, actually. And everything was always in disarray. She was a good cook and all of that, but she was just not really into housework. She kind of hated it. So beautifying the house was not her thing. And she was always kind of embarrassed. We were raised to believe that the neighbors were always judging us and that we should probably never let them in. And so this this scene really resonates perfectly with me. This is exactly what would have happened had we let them in. And we didn't have the magic to create the bone china. Just the horrible, dirty dishes from last night's dinner at our house would just be laying there. Your neighbors are people who are waiting to invade your home and judge you. Yeah, yeah. And I've even talked to my sister about that later. I was raised with that idea. And so now, like, when I come home from work, I'm not one of those people who says... Hi to the neighbors. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I actually drive up and use my garage door opener and pull in and hope to not see anybody. And of course, it doesn't help that we have like a totally <laughs> nosy neighbor, a Gladys Kravitz lady who's constantly walking her cat back and forth in front of our house. Wait, walking a cat? Wait, she on a leash? her cat. She walks her cat. <laughs> no, the cat is not on a leash, which is, oh. I'm sure I'm going to, thank God we're moving, because one of these days I was sure I was going to just run that cat over. <laughs> but she's walking up and down with her cat, and sometimes she's even out early in the morning and or late at night in her pajamas. And Brian says to me, if I was going outside in my pajamas, wouldn't you tell me not to do it? He can't figure out why her partner <laughs> doesn't rein her in a little bit. She's quite nosy, though. Actually, we were taking bets, wondering if she'd ever gone into our house when we weren't home. Oh, (laughs) jeez. And also, just another thing that she does is the light goes on automatically. So often, when I'm coming or going from my house, I look over 
And she's there with her cat sitting on that bench. Oh, my God. She really is a Gladys Kravis. She's just sitting yes. in the dark, yes. washing outwards towards the neighborhood like a crazy hillbilly on a front porch. Yeah, the guy across the street calls her New Scene 15. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it just means that she's the source of the news of the neighborhood. <laughs> she's up and down spying on everybody all the time. Well, that would drive you to be antisocial. I grew up as a New Yorker. We grew up with a lot of the same ideas insofar as we thought the neighbors were constantly watching us and judging us from their windows. And yeah, we rarely, if ever, invited them into our home, which was a pretty nice home, I think. But my parents were not sociable people. It's funny how you feel about neighbors. And we're about to move into a neighborhood where we're going to have a lot more pressure to be social. It's just a much more neighborly neighborhood where people be, you know, dropping by. So we got to the point where the three boys were tied up. Gladys is freaking out. So she runs downstairs to call Abner to tell him that there were three kids tied up. He doesn't <laughs> care at all. He, he can't even understand what she's talking about. Nobody even listens to her enough to understand what her concern is, that there were three kids tied up. The demented nerve that she has to use the Stevens phone to call Abner across the street as if she's trapped in a hostage crisis. Yeah. It, 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 it is pretty hysterical. So as soon as she gets off the phone, there's a knock at the back door. And then, surprise! A tidy, well-spoken black man. And he's the telephone guy. But that you have to give them credit because I think this is one of the first shows that showed African-American people just as citizens doing stuff, working jobs. Agreed. It's not a plot point. Well, I mean, the, the phone is the plot point, not the repairman, really. But it's nice that he is treated respectfully. I'm sure that the um, script probably didn't say black repair guy, right? <laughs> it just no. said repair guy, no. and he happened and to be black. <laughs> Gladys lets him in, and he explains he's there to fix the phone, and she lets him do his job, and it's as simple as that. It doesn't cause anyone to pause or give it a second thought. So it is nice insofar as no real attention is paid to it. Yeah. Of course, Gladys later realizes that she just used the phone that wasn't hooked up. <laughs> Thanks for everything, Mrs. Stevens. I had a wonderful time. Oh, please come back again soon. Oh, sure, sure. By the way, I let in the phone repairman to hook up your telephones. Thank you. <laughs> to hook up your telephones! Before we leave the welcome wagon, because they are about to leave, I just want to say one more thing about the art of war amongst women. They throw a lot of slings and barbs at Samantha, and they're not meant to be subtle. They're meant to sting. Yes, for sure. They're putting her in her place. So when they say things like, I'm sure your nice things will have to last you a long, long time. <laughs> that is, that is or, harsh. Or when they say, we'll put you in touch with our decorator. He can do wonders for you. It has overtures of Darren's ex-girlfriend, Sheila, from the pilot episode. No, I totally agree. The ladies are super mean. I think that Samantha is one down because she's young and childless. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And these women are established housewives of the neighborhood. And mothers. It's a badge of honor that they are beleaguered mothers. I mean, their faces fall like souffles when their children are screaming and running around the house. All their poise goes out the window, and they, they, for at least for that moment, look exhausted. That may be the one solidarity amongst them. It's like they are exhausted moms, but they have time to take the mickey out of the young... (laughs) (laughs) The young newlywed wife who's fresh on the neighborhood scene. There's a very clear hierarchy in this neighborhood. Pecking order, yes. The only thing that really kind of distracts them is that they have to chase after their kids. They would have stayed there for hours pecking away at Samantha if those kids didn't get (laughs) to acting up. Gladys... After she goes home trying to tell Abner what happened and she has an ice pack on her head. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. Those... It sort of looks like a beret. It's yeah. like a it's it's one of those old school ice packs that sort of accordion like it's got pleats in it. Something that I remember my grandmother had. Yes, exactly. I love that ice pack. And I have to say that Gladys and Abner have an actually very nice house. It's an old fashioned style, but it's big and it's I don't know what Gladys and Abner did or what Abner did for a living when he worked. He worked like a dog for 32 years. Yeah, he worked (laughs) like a dog, but he must have made some money because just looking at their furniture, it's actually pretty. Ooh, I just suddenly had a sneaking suspicion. Is Gladys at the bottom of the totem pole with the established ladies because she and Abner are childless? No, I think that that definitely makes a difference in this kind of um, suburban neighborhood pecking order, that the childless older woman is, is at the bottom of the caste system. Be out. Yeah, she's yeah. going to be out. So Samantha goes to bat for Darren and says that he's not the average human. Mother, you must believe that Darren isn't like that. Like what? The average human. He's not covetous or envious or inconsiderate. All these things are not true. <laughs> no, he's all those things. <laughs> any given moment, he might be any of those things. Yeah, I totally agree. But it's during this moment that Samantha invites Endora to dinner, insisting that it's time that Endora and Darren finally meet. Endora, for the first three episodes, has sort of been skulking around in the background, and she's watched Darren very, very closely. She's been spying on them. She's been hiding just over his shoulder and observing him, making fun of him, and having a generally a good laugh about him privately to Samantha. But he has never laid eyes on her. You can tell that there's mischief already. <laughs> she makes it clear right away that she's not going to play this straight and really try to get this guy to like her. She goes through a series of different outfits asking Samantha what kind of mother-in-law would he like? Would he like lavender and old lace? Would he like Wild West? She dresses up as a motorcycle gang member. <laughs> like uh, Marlon Brando. Yes. Complete with a, a captain's hat. This show is much more old-fashioned, but they do put in that caricature of what the modern world is like. A modern hoodlum, yes. So Endora agrees to come, then Darren comes home. Martinis in rocks glasses with ice. Yes. They have a beautiful gin decanter, but watery martinis because they're having them over rocks. Yes, and the, the wardrobe. So when you invite... Stephen's parents over for the first time, what would you wear? Naturally, my tuxedo. (laughs) You have to wear your best evening clothes to impress your in-laws. Yes. 
And Samantha is also wearing an evening gown. I love the fact that they get dressed up for dinner in this episode. You gotta be dressed up to eat that giant freaking ham. My own tuxedo <laughs> has a shawl collar, uh, just like Darren's does. I love a shawl collar on a tuxedo. But I don't like the lapels that they've got satin piping instead of being entirely made of satin. So, yeah, what did you think of Samantha's formal wear then? Okay, it's a very simple dress. It's some kind of silky taffeta thing with ruching, and it's flattering. And, you know, she always wears this locket. Oh, yeah, we haven't even mentioned that. And it's shown up, I think, in every episode. It's a diamond heart locket. I don't think that's ever mentioned. I actually think I know a little bit about this. It's actually a piece of personal jewelry of hers from her husband in real life. Oh. So it is not actually a prop. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. And Dora, who arrives them while they're having their cocktails, and she's dressed up like Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, she is. That's funny that you would say that. I didn't even think of that. Because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. I've seen it like 50 times. <laughs> Lots of uh, black sequins and feathers and uh, I think some lace, too, and some interesting opera gloves. And a black wrap of some sort. Darren was worried that she would have nine eyes or something. What was that about? Darren works himself up into a nervous frenzy while sipping his martini that Endora is some sort of horrible mutant monster. But he, the doorbell rings, he opens it, and there she is, and she looks lovely. As if she stepped off the set of Hollywood Babylon? Yeah, eccentric eccentric and from a different era i give her a bit of a pass there i mean when was the last time you were at a dinner where you put your tuxedo on and there were only three people there seriously it feels like downton abbey <laughs> he's happy to see how normal she looks and he's nice to her at first i actually really like endora the way she is she's very cold and aloof and imperious and terribly serious, honestly, in a way that we haven't seen her before on the series. I mean, you could imagine the same kind of attitude if magic wasn't involved, just sort of a class difference. She's very snooty. He offers her a drink and she gets her own. I'd like a very dry martini. Italian vermouth, Spanish gin, and a Greek olive. <laughs> well, I don't think we have any. Oh, don't bother. I'll fix it myself. <laughs> Each ingredient was from a different country. She asks for a cigarette, and he gives her a cigarette. He tries to offer her a light, but she has her own. And then Samantha, helpfully, tries to give her an ashtray. And that's where it all falls apart. What on earth did you do that for? Do what? You carried that ashtray to me. <laughs> Don't tell me you've forgotten how to levitate. Of course I haven't forgotten, Mother. It's just that Darren prefers that I don't do any of that stuff anymore. Darren insultingly calls witchcraft nonsense. Why do you object to my daughter being herself, young man? I like Samantha the way she is, Endora. She doesn't need any of that other nonsense. Nonsense? Darren doesn't mean anything. Darren, please. I mean, we don't need those powers of hers. We can handle things very well by ourselves. Darren makes the mistake of insisting that they want to live normal lives, which is just about the most challengingly offensive thing that you can say. The way that that makes Endora bristle, the use of the word normal, I love that she responds to him saying, What is normal to you, young man, is to us asinine. <laughs> Samantha is what she is, and that you cannot change. I love that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and she's right. She is right. And then she uh, calls him <laughs> young man and threatens to turn him into an artichoke. 
Yes. Why doesn't she turn him into one? Samantha pleads that she not do it, right? It's funny the way that Samantha defends him. She kind of says he doesn't know what he's saying, as if he's like a kid. <laughs> as if he's <laughs> as if Darren is a child. <laughs> Just consider yourself lucky that you are not at this moment an artichoke. <laughs> so from now on, watch your step, young man. Mother is watching you. And Dora disappears in a poof of smoke. Oh, yeah. Eldritch green flames. Yeah, it's a spectacular exit. It is. Green flames and smoke. I love the green flames. And then flash to Gladys Kravitz wearing some kind of rollers and a... Oh, yeah. She's in pajamas, curlers, and a bizarre nightcap <laughs> with binoculars. <laughs> what are you doing? Looking into the house... Abner actually scolds her for, you know, what's wrong with you? And she says, go ahead, kill me. I know this is all just a dream. And then she waits. <laughs> with a big demented <laughs> smile on her face. <laughs> so then we have the romantic scene between Darren and Samantha where he says, could she really turn me into an artichoke? Yes. <laughs> yes, she could. Yep, she could. And what would you do? And then she says she would become an artichoke, too. Aw. Yeah. Samantha's expressions of love are so unconditional. It wouldn't be as frustrating if Darren's love didn't come with all these caveats and strings and demands. I think it may be time for our signature segment, Can We Forgive Darren? He's such a bigot. <laughs> but to be right. fair, Endora is almost equally a bigot. Yeah, it's two bigots going at it, really. That is the core of it. Endora, she has a sort of wealthy, elite appreciation of finer things without any of the concern about either making any effort or earning any money to get anything. And he just can't see eye to eye with her on the witchy life of instant gratification. Yeah, it's not normal to him. That incendiary buzzword, normal, uh, he makes an effort. I mean, he tries, but he completely puts his foot in his mouth. Here's a question for yeah, you. Yeah, please. Who committed the worst sin? <laughs> Darren, when he challenged Endora and called her lifestyle not normal, or Endora when she tied up three kids, when he <laughs> hog-tied three neighbor children? Well, the... the... <laughs> The children weren't injured. It wasn't as if she started cooking them or anything like that. Seems like kind of a red state, blue state thing or something. <laughs> I don't know. There's some politics in there. There are some politics at, at, at the core of this. Uh, <laughs> I would have to say Darren's offense is greater to me because those children were horrible and they had it coming to them. You just don't like children. No, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> I, I, I think I like my friend's children. I like I like your daughter very much. She's Aww. wonderful. She's 36. She, <laughs> but she was she was a child when I met her. You and I have been friends for over 20 years. <laughs> so what about okay, whose sin is worse then? Endora hog tying the children. Or June Foster and Shirley Clyde judging Samantha and making sure she understands she's lower in the pecking order. It feels weirdly as if the Welcome Wagon Committee are operating within established rules of combat. Um, so you didn't answer me. Oh. Can you forgive Darren today, Molly? 
I still don't like his premise, but I wasn't as mad at him today as I usually am. I think he got it back just as hard, and I felt like his bigotry came from a ignorant place. Hmm. I don't like how he then grabs the authority to say, you know, he gets to set the rules without trying to understand the other person. But similarly, Endora has no interest in understanding him either. It just felt like it was a more evenly matched two people being mean to each other. I'm always going to be against his anti-witch stance. That's just perennial. But compared to other episodes where he was really demeaning, he didn't seem like this time. What did you think? For me, it is a big trigger to be called not normal. And I feel very strongly about Darren's cavalier use of that word, as Endora does. This show has a very queer sensibility. It has, I think, a very devoted gay following. And these are important subjects for a gay audience member. So I am inclined to not forgive him yet again. But thankfully, for a completely different reason than I do in most episodes. This time, he's not saying something chauvinistic or sexist. He is just being a uncompromising prig and champion of conventionality. True. And conformity. I totally get that. Some people might be triggered at being tied up. (laughs) (laughs) You you mean erotically? (laughs) Well, both pro and con. Yes. (laughs) It could be both positive or negative, but the tying up could be another trigger warning point for this episode. I think I hear the music. Must be time for us to go. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, and that you join us next time where we shift gears and begin four episodes from the first season of I Dream of Genie. This is going to be exciting, unexplored territory for us. Are you excited, Molly? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I don't like Jeannie. <laughs> well, you say that, but <laughs> there's so much to talk about. I watch and... every episode. I'll watch it. It's magic. I told you I can forgive a lot when it's magic. In one short month, we'll be back to reviewing our favorite episodes from season one of Bewitched. All right. <laughs> Before we go, we'd love it if, if you would listen to some of our other shows on the Piwacket Podcast Network. The Brothers Grimmer with Frank and Bert. And A Breed Apart with Dr. Kate and Stephen. Well, until next time. Until next time. Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network. Our opening song is sung by Melissa Arning. A special thanks to Melissa for letting us use it.